0: Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell.
1: This is Jane Lipkowski, and welcome to the session on spinal cord injury. Uh, it's our pleasure today to have four fantastic presentations. The first from Jake Javier, who will be talking about his work and, and his experience with suffering a spinal cord injury. And then th- uh, three separate talks from researchers who have been involved in developing therapies for spinal cord injury. From Mark Tizinski, long uh, from uh, UCSD, who's long been in the field and discovering ways to reenervate and to a spinal cord injury site from François Binet looking at oligodendrocyte progenitors uh, for the treatment of spinal cord injury. And then finally, from Eileen Anderson, who will be talking about her work in terms of characterizing um, cells and predicting what cells will be efficacious, what cells will not be efficacious. So, tremendous work from all three of these uh, researchers. And we'll go on with the session and look forward to discussion at the end.
2: Hello, everyone,
3: and welcome again to the CIRM 2020 grantee meeting. Over the course of the last couple of days, we've had the the luxury and the privilege of talking to some extraordinary people. And our next guest certainly falls into that category. Jake Javier was a participant in the very first clinical trial that CIRM ever funded, and we're delighted to have him join us now. Hello, Jake. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Kevin? I'm grand. I'm grand. Thank you. Um, So if we could start with you describing what happened to you on the day before you graduated high school.
2: Yeah. So it was the last day of school, day before graduation, like you said. And went to a friend's house and we were all swimming and I dove into a pool and ended up hitting my head on the bottom, breaking my neck. And I was immediately paralyzed from the the neck down and flown to a nearby hospital to have uh, emergency stabilizing surgery.
3: I can't even begin to imagine what that was like when you
2: woke up. I mean, what were they telling you? Um, You know, it's not. It's interesting because you think like it'd be kind of like a a movie where you get that moment where it's like you're not going to walk again. But it's not quite like that because, you know, with everything going on, it's just your initial instincts is to try and survive. Honestly, I mean, I was at a point where I was on a ventilator and I couldn't breathe on my own. And so there was so much going on. that I didn't really have time to really think, you know, about what was going on. It was just, all right, next step. Move on. Keep going. And when did you hear about the clinical trial? So my whole time frame has shifted with, you know, all the all the trauma and the, the medication I was on. So hard to say exactly what day, but I know it was really early on. I think it was about a week after my injury, um, about when I started becoming more conscious. And um, just got a call about it uh, from Dr. Steinberg, and he kind of started to explaining it and um, telling us all about it. And it was just a whole lot of information that was coming in, but um, we were very glad to get that call.
3: It must be really hard though i mean you're in the middle of a crisis and then you get this call and you're having to make a decision about something that is experimental this is this was the first time this had been tried in people um how do you go about doing that? i know the, you and your family are very close and so obviously you worked with them but how what did you talk about
2: yeah so i mean the obviously the type of um trial is new and everything but at this point everything was new for us um you know we had no idea where we were going to go from here no idea what the next steps were. So for us, we just saw, okay, there's this new thing. It's of course a clinical trial, so we don't know what's going to happen with it, but it's a bit of a glimmer of a hope, you know? And so we talked about it and we thought we might as well take the chance and, and see what could happen because we had no idea what the next steps were anyway. So we were explained to explained about it um, very well by different doctors and everyone involved with the trial. And um, they're able to kind of give us assurance that this could be a very viable next step for us. So we decided to go forward with it.
3: So the, also the idea, though, that it might not work. I mean, so how important was it you to take part anyway, just in the idea that maybe it could work, but maybe whatever they learned might help other people as well?
2: Yeah, so everyone involved was really good about explaining that to us and saying, you know, we have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, we have an idea, but, you know, it could either, it could, nothing could happen or you could get a good recovery, but um like I said I mean at this point we knew that I was in a situation where with the level of trauma that happened to my neck where I wasn't expected to get a lot of recovery anyway. So we figured that I was in the perfect range where I was kind of like the best of the worst. That's what kept being told about me it's like you know I was in a worst case scenario but I was young and you know athletic and had the ability to have a high ceiling and a lot of potential for recovery. So when this came to us, we were like, okay, we might as well try everything we can.
3: Best of the worst, I don't think there's a category anyone ever wants to be in, is it? How much time, yeah, I know that there was was kind of, this was kind of a very time sensitive decision. So how much time did you have to really decide?
2: So the actual surgery had to happen within 30 days of my injury. So our timetable was about 30 days, but on top of that, we had to actually apply to get it and actually um, qualify for the trial. So there was a lot of steps between then and the surgery. So um, while we had 30 days, it was kind of more of a a time time crunch than that, but it was still enough time to think about it. I mean, I wasn't doing anything else. So we were able to sit there and soak in all the information and really learn about all sorts of different things about it and um, took our time in making the decision. Once you'd had the surgery, the procedure,
3: um, talk about the recovery, what happened afterwards?
2: So initially, I mean, the surgery wasn't too bad. It was just a day of recovery in bed. Um, But then after that, I really started beginning my actual physical rehabilitation and um, just kind of went to work every day. And we knew that while the surgery kind of helped stimulate recovery, it was also dependent on how much work I put into it. And so it was just going to PT and occupational therapy every day. And working as hard as I can to try and get as much recovery as I could, so I spent the next five and the five and a half months in the hospital as an inpatient and just going through different therapies every day.
3: Yeah, I saw you at physical therapy, I saw how hard you were working and, and just how painful it seemed and how difficult, but I mean you really stuck with it at the time um, of the accident, you were on a f-
2: scholarship to Cal Poly, a football scholarship to Cal Poly. What's happened since then? So one thing I really worked hard for in the hospital was achieving my goal of going back to school. And the original goal was Cal Poly. Um, Obviously, I couldn't play football anymore, but I was still pretty involved with the team. Um, At least in my earlier years, I was going to the locker room with them and being on the sideline with them. So it's really great having the support of the team there still. And then in regards to actually going to school, I took a year off. um, Gap year, ended up going to school the following year. Um and actually ended up changing my major and that came out of the the trial. Um in learning all the information I did about stem cells and research and science and everything like that, it kinda changed my mind on what I wanted to study because originally I was just applied as a mechanical engineer, just thinking, okay, I don't really know what I want to do but I think I could be an engineer but I ended up switching it to being a biomedical engineer. So it kinda gave me a new path, which is interesting and really lucky. Are you enjoying it? I am. I am. I'm going to my fourth year now, so wow. final stretch. Uh, I know, real world coming up, so not quite looking forward to that, but um, <laughs> it's been a lot of fun and a great experience.
3: I think if you've got through this, the real world won't, really won't hold too many challenges for you. <laughs> so since your accident, you and your family have, both, have all become kind of advocates for stem cell research.
2: Um, how important has that been for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big proponent of stem cell research and any sort of science. I think that you know, we might as well try, try anything we can to help with people that are in you know, situations similar to mine. Um, I've seen firsthand, not just in myself, but in other patient advocates, uh, what great things stem cells can do for people. So I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, as much, as much as I can do to help, I mean, it's the least I can do for all it's done for me.
3: Uh, and you're really a pioneer. I mean, one of the first people ever to try this, this approach. Um,
2: talk about that role. How does that
3: feel to you being a pioneer in something like this?
2: I don't think it's quite hit me. I don't know if it'll ever quite hit me, you know, the, the gravity of it. But what I am thankful for is all the hard work people put into it to get into that. Um, while I was one of the first people to actually receive the stem cells, I feel like all the work that went into it and I'm just a small role in the, the, big, the big picture, you know, um, all the researchers and scientists, the years it took to get to the point where it could actually be injected into me is, um, is quite humbling.
3: Small role, but a crucial role. With I mean you're the end user, so that's what it's all this has been all about. Um so how
2: are you today? Talk about your life today. Yeah, so like I said, I'm going to my fourth year now. Um, really enjoying myself. I'm able to live independently. Um, something that wasn't originally, you know, very realistic, uh, due to my level of function. But I'm able to go through my day to day life. Uh, I live with roommates and live a pretty regular college life and I have a lot of people to thank for that, but um you know, CERM and stem cells is, is up there because I didn't know what kind of recovery I would achieve, but um, I definitely outshined expectations. And I think a part of that is the trial and a part of that is all the hard work that goes into it.
3: Great, Jake, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story with us.
2: Yes, thank you, Kevin.
0: It's my pleasure to tell you about our um, CERM TRAN-1 grant. Uh, in which we are pursuing a project uh, entitled Human Embryonic Stem Cell Derived Neural Stem Cells for Severe Spinal Cord Injury. And basically, I'm going to tell you the story of the remarkable biology of neural stem cells in the context of spinal cord injury and how we're trying to leverage that biology to move this technology along to humans and develop a therapy for even severe spinal cord injury. And I'd like to, at the outset, acknowledge the many collaborators that are part of this project moving forward, both within my own group at UCSD and our collaborators at a number of other institutions. It's really been a multi-institutional effort supported by many sources that are listed here at the bottom. So human spinal cord injury is an area of great unmet medical need. There are about 15,000 new injuries per year, but there are two hundred to five hundred thousand people living with chronic spinal cord injury in the United States. And tragically, this often affects people early in life, sometimes at infancy after spinal bifida uh, occurs, um, but often in younger adults because of activity. And then there's another wave in older adults as osteoarthritis of the spine can cause spinal cord compression. So There is often functional loss that is complete below the level of an injury, and tragically, there are no treatments to repair the injured spinal cord. Um, And why doesn't the spinal cord repair itself? One of the great areas of advance in modern science has been an understanding of why the injured spinal cord doesn't regenerate. And those reasons are listed here. If you look at the MRI image on the right, the area of darkness is a spinal cord injury site in the human several years after injury. And this in- injury site is empty and regenerating axons need a bridge onto which they can grow. And when the spinal injury site is empty, they have no bridge. Secondly, the injured spinal cord doesn't produce new proteins to stimulate growth, unlike the injured peripheral nerve, which does. Third, there are actually several proteins that form around this injury site that block new growth, even if it were to occur. And fourth, inflammation often worsens the damage. And then finally, it may be the case that injured cells of the central nervous system need a stimulus to wake up again and actively re-enter a growth state. And so I'm gonna tell you the story of the remarkable biology of neural stem cells and their ability, surprisingly, to grow very large numbers of axons, which are the connections of the nervous system, over very long distances after spinal cord injury. So let me take you through this now. The, the concept that we're trying to approach in this work is to form new relays across the site of injury. So this is a, a diagram of a spinal cord. And the red lines are the wires, the connections of the nervous system that get cut by, these, by the injury site. And the injury site itself, that results from the compression of the spinal cord, uh, often degenerates and is an empty cyst. So these axons are stopped at the cyst and can't grow. And the idea of a stem cell implant that's shown in green here, is that these stem cells will survive and fill this injury site that they will enable the regeneration of the injured axons of the person, the host, to enter the stem cells in the injury site, and that the stem cells themselves will extend new connections, new axons below the injury, hence splicing the circuit and forming new relays to restore function after injury. That's the concept. Why do we use neural stem cells? Well, because they're developing cells and they're in an intrinsically high growth state. And they can fill the injury site as shown here in the rat. So this is a rat spinal cord. The head is toward the left. The tail is toward the right. And this green thing occupying the injury site is a stem cell. And they can indeed fill this injury site if provided the right substances to do so and can reestablish physical continuity and, and represent a bridge for growth. These stem cells are a unique environment that allows the injured host axons to regenerate into the injury site, and these stem cells, in turn, extend the new connections below the injury, so they can bridge the gap, they can splice the circuit, and hopefully improve function. So this is the hypothetical concept. To what extent do we actually see this happen? Um, Well, I'll show you that in a second. So let me just go back a step and say, what are stem cells? So these are the cells that form the brain and the spinal cord as we are fetuses developing before we are born. So stem cells uh, can become all nerve cells, neurons, as well as the supporting cells of the nervous system called the glia, which are also called the astrocytes and the oligodendrocytes. So we start with an embryonic stem cell. And some of these cells, after many days of development, become committed neural stem cells where they will just generate cells of the brain and the spinal cord. We are making the cells at that stage when they are neural stem cells. We are making them from an embryonic stem cell line that was first produced at the University of Wisconsin two decades ago. And we use these cells because they are generally safe and they show controlled growth properties. And these are called the H9 line of human embryonic stem cells that were, again, developed decades ago. We're not generating new stem cells. We're taking those existing stem cells and making spinal cord neural stem cells from them. So we take those cells, we drive them to become these spinal cord cells. And they have to be driven to spinal cord stem cells because their their spinal cord properties are necessary for them to be effective in neural repair. So what do they do when we place these cells in animal models of spinal cord injury? So if we don't put anything in the injury site, then this is, it's empty. So this again is a rat spinal cord. It's a very thin section of the spinal cord. The head is to the left, the tail is to the right, and this is all the spinal cord, and it's been cut. This is a severe lesion. This is as severe as it gets. And nothing fills in the injury site. This is showing the edges of the cut spinal cord on either side. So our first job was to get these cells to survive and in a sense flourish in the injury site. And this took years of development. Uh, embedding these cells in a gel and adding proteins called growth factors to enable them to survive and fill the lesion site. And, and eventually, uh, my partner in this work, Paul Liu, and our collaborators in our own group and others were successful in getting these stem cells to survive and fill in the site. And when we could do that, we saw this astonishing biology emerge. So we made all of our stem cells green. We genetically made them green by tagging them with a protein called green fluorescent protein. So when we introduce these cells into animals, they stay green. And all of the connections that they grow outward are also green. So we can see them and we can track them. We can track their fate. So we did a complete cut of the rat's spinal cord here and we implanted human neural stem cells in the rat's spinal cord. These were uh, immunodeficient animals, so the grafts were not rejected. And from the injury site here, you can readily see the output of tens of thousands in larger animals, hundreds of thousands of new connections, new axons streaming down the spinal cord that has lost its inputs because of the connections. This is absolutely astonishing biology that we did not anticipate when we began this work. And if we look at human neural stem cells, again, put into the right side of the spinal cord, now we're seeing the spinal cord in a cross section. So the injury is several sites above this. And if we look for spinal cord levels below the injury, everything green here is a human axon growing through the rat spinal cord on the right side. And you can see that the spinal cord is almost replaced by human axons. This amount of growth is, again, it's just remarkable that this occurs. And if we look at a higher magnification in the spinal cord, we see all of these green human axons growing among the yellow axons of the rat itself. And here they are branching up and going into the areas where the cells are, the gray matter of the spinal cord below the injury. So what I've shown you so far is that we can take the the stem cells and plant them in the injury site, they survive in the injury site, and they extend all the connections below. But what about the host? Does it regenerate axons into the stem cell graft? Because that has to happen too for a relay. And the answer is yes, it does happen. So here are the injured axons approaching an injury site, again, in the rat's spinal cord. So the white dotted line outlines the stem cell graft we have placed into the spinal cord. Normally, the, the uh, connections of the host, these axons, would stop right here and not grow. But now in the presence of the graft, you can see how extensively they actually regenerate into the injury site. They regenerate in and they form connections, synapses, with the grafted neural stem cells. The neural stem cells, as they send the axons down the spinal cord, also form connections, synapses, with the host neurons below the spinal cord that lost their inputs. So we have spliced the circuit. Does this support functional recovery? Well, if we do a cervical level injury, an injury in the neck, and then we look at the ability of rats to retrieve food rewards with their hand grasping a pellet, you know, normally with the injury, the hand is just closed in a fist and can't do anything. Um, If we wait over time, the rats show very little recovery. This is the number of pellets that they can reach if they do not have a stem cell graft. And here the red line shows their recovery if they have a stem cell graft. So it's not complete recovery, but they're doing about twice as well as they would without the graft and they're recovering roughly half their ability to use the hand, when otherwise they would recover quite a bit less. And if we look at the legs, when we do a complete thoracic transection, so if we cut the spinal cord completely, here in the, uh, in the back as opposed to the neck, then the arms are fine in rats, but then their legs are not functioning. And so in animals that have this complete cut, at the upper thoracic level, there's very little movement of the legs. But now if we put in a stem cell graft, they show much more recovery of the legs. It's not complete recovery. This, this graph goes up to a scale of eight here, but that a normal animal performs at 21 on the scale. So it's not complete recovery, but they're able to move each joint of their legs. And that's what this amount of recovery represents. And so we have anatomical reconstruction, we have functional improvement. So we have uh, moved along this technology now to larger animal models in preparation for human clinical trials. So in these larger animals, we do partial spinal cord injuries so that the animals, you know, they're larger. So we want them to be able to move around the cage and that sort of thing. So with this kind of partial cervical injury, they have impairment of just the right hand. The left hand works, the legs work, and the ball and bladder works. So they're not in pain, they're not uncomfortable, but we can measure whether they have recovery of the hand. And it took, again, a long time to develop the methods to successfully implant neural stem cells into these contusion spinal cord cavities in larger animals. But we were successful, and now, uh, much of the time, These grafts survive and fill an injury site, a contusion injury site. And contusion, again, is a bang to the spinal cord, the kind of injury most humans have. So we can fill the injury site, and once again, up to hundreds of thousands of connections emerge from these implants. Um, And if we look at the spinal cord two sections below, two levels below the original injury, there are many of these green human axons traveling down the larger animal spinal cord. If we look at higher magnification, look at all of these human connections, these axons traveling down the spinal cord, the basis for potential functional recovery. And in larger animals, kind of like the rats, we see a a substantial improvement compared to animals that don't have a graft in the ability to use the hand. Again, it's not complete recovery. They recover to about 50%, but that's about twice as good as animals that don't have a graft. And for a human, what this might mean is an ability to now move the arm and control a motorized wheelchair when they didn't have that before. Or perhaps if they have a lower injury, some ability to begin to manipulate a keyboard. We won't know until we bring this to humans. So um, we're now planning to move this technology to first-in-human clinical trials. And uh, thank goodness for the CERM granting mechanism, because this is providing us the resources we need to actually manufacture these cells for a human clinical trial and meet the requirements of the Food and Drug Administration to actually start human clinical trials. So the CERM TRAN-1 grant is funding us to manufacture cells for human clinical trials. There, it's allowing us to develop the, the, what the FDA requires to characterize and release the cells for human use. They're funding us to, the CERN is funding us to make these so-called clinical cell banks. They're called master and working cell banks that will provide the material to expand to treat humans with spinal cord injury. The grant will allow us to show that the cells are safe and that the newly manufactured cells are effective and allow us to identify the minimal dose and the maximum tolerated doses, the kind of information that the FDA requires to enable us to begin this work in humans. And finally, this work will end with uh, a pre-IND meeting, as it's called, with the FDA. So we are very grateful to uh, CERM for providing these funds. Uh, we've made significant progress to date on these first two goals and are continuing to work on the others that will follow. Um, and we hope that at the end of the day, we'll be effective in developing a therapy for even severe human injury and to benefit the human condition. Thank you for your attention. So
4: I'm really happy uh, to be here today and provide you with an update on our uh, spinal cord uh, injury therapy with OPC1. My name is Francois Binette. I'm the Senior Vice President for Product Development for Lineage Cell Therapeutics. Um, let me get this out of the way quickly. Um, you know, we're a publicly traded companies, so I'll be making a forward-looking statement sure you've seen this in other presentations as well. So I direct you to our uh, website and our 10k filing if you want to learn more about this exciting area. Um, so what is Lineage? Uh, we're a regenerative medicine company, obviously. We're manufacturing off-the-shelf cell therapy from our platform of pluripotent stem cell to address severe disease and injury. So those diseases that do not have approved therapies or therapeutic solution right now. So what we're doing is relatively simple. You know, we're taking pluripotent stem cells and we're deriving from these pluripotent stem cells various lineages, of various specialized cells. And what we're putting in people to treat their disease or injuries is that we're not actually injecting people with stem cells. We're really trying to replace uh, disease or dead tissue with specialized cells, the cells that have been damaged. And hopefully provide a, a long term benefit, so this is really a little bit different than treating symptoms, and this is really what attracted me to this area of regenerative medicine is the potentially the promise of bringing a cure to patients, at least providing a long term benefit. but that's easier said than done, obviously. Uh, you know to be successful re- with uh, regenerative medicine um, it's it's rather complex. Uh, not only do we need to understand well the biology of the stem cells. As well as the specialized cells that we are targeting. Uh, we also need to um, uh, consider um, the, um, where these cells are placed in the body. That is, it often requires um, specialized tools and instrumentation that do not exist prior to, uh, to uh, this therapy being delivered. So we have to work with engineers and develop creative solutions for delivering our cells because they oftentimes need to be placed in a very specific Uh, anatomical compartment. Moreover, we need to have a strong partnership with a surgeon that are um, uh, enabling with their new surgical procedure to place these cells in the right ana- anatomical location using these new uh, these new tools and, and devices. So it's a very exciting field. Obviously, uh, you get to interact with a lot of different people with a lot of different background, but it's it's com- it's complex. It's different a little bit different than uh, than traditional uh, drug or biologic development. So, we have two, three ongoing programs at uh, Lineage. Uh, we have a retinal cell, uh, retinal pigment uh, epithelial cell for macular degeneration. We also have a dendritic cell program for um, uh, as cancer vaccine, which I'm not going to talk about. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about the oligodendrocyte program or the um, OPC1 program for spinal cord injury. So spinal cord injury, you know, as you know, it's a very devastating condition. Um, you know, and what I want to show you on this, on this slide is obviously there's a lot of statistic on that as far as cost to the patient, to the society in general, and, and burden on, on the healthcare system. But what's important, I think, for you to understand is depending on where the injury is on the spine, it really affects the patient differently. That is, the, the higher, the closer the injury is to, uh, to the brain, the more severe or impactful the injury is going to be. So alternatively, if it's lower on the spine or closer to the thoracic spine, it's less impactful, but there are fewer nerves that are involved um, in this area of the spine. But the problem is that most of the injuries because of trauma they occur in the neck region or cervical region because that's the least protected area of the spine, so it, it this is the area that's more mobile, obviously as you know, and it's the least protected um you know because the the lord and and the spine is protected by the torso and the rest of of, of your body. Needless to say for a patient it's really impactful it's devastating uh oftentimes and, and the patient are wheelchair bound after that, paralyzed as you know. Lots of pain, recurring pain, chronic pain, rehospitalization. Oftentimes, these patients need to have uh, breathing assist as well, shortened life expectancy. So it's, it's just dreadful for these patients. And it really became uh, very personal quickly for us at Lineage because um, although we acquired this program about uh, a year and a half ago when we merged with uh, a company called Asterius uh, Biotherapeutics that was developing this particular program, Um, You know, just this year we had a uh, a colleague of us, and and we're a small company, right? So, um, you know, colleagues for us are almost family members and and friends. So, a a colleague of us, um, one of his family members actually got a spinal cord injury, just an accident, and, and broke his neck. And uh, what's happening is that, uh, you know, we got really frustrated in some ways because although we might have had a therapy that could have benefited this uh, particular patient, um, we couldn't do anything because it happened that we uh, finished enrollment in our trial about two years ago, uh, you know, that I'm going to talk about a little bit. And and then we're not quite ready for the next stage trial. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, you know, what we're doing in order to get ready for the next stage trial. So frustrating, obviously, for everybody. Um, uh, so it became very, as I said, personal to us as well. So what is uh, OPC1, um, you know, our, our therapeutic candidate for spinal cord injury? So OPC1 is, is a preparation of oligodendrocyte uh, D-cells. Uh, what they do, they're not neurons or traditional nerve cell that you know that, that are part of the brain and the peripheral nervous system. They're the cells that are wrapping the nerves and the axon of these nerves to really uh, insulate these, uh, these axons to conduct uh, the electrical current or the communication between the brain and the periphery. So not only these cells, they allow or they accelerate this electrical current to communicate between the brain and the periphery, but also responsible to maintain good health of, of the neuron and, and the brain and the periphery. So they're very important cells to just maintain and improve the health of of brain cells, if you will. So what we found is the cells that we can derive from pluripotent uh, stem cells that we derive into these specialized oligodendrocyte, they do what we were hoping that they would do. We have a lot of uh, preclinical, in vitro, and animal studies uh, that show that these cells can indeed uh, remyelinate these axons, that is, they can recoat. These, uh, these axon and the neuron and insulate them, but also involve in general health. They help in tissue remodeling, that is the help healing of this condition when you have an injury to the spine. Uh, they help bring new vasculature to the, to, to the injury site and they prevent scar formation. They also help neurons communicate between one another by, by uh, enhancing these neurite and these, these fibrils that communicate between the neurons. And more importantly, they improve uh, motor function. So this is what we're trying to do from a clinical perspective is improve uh, patient's uh, motor function. On this slide, what I want to show you is on on this table you see on the left is is a few um, function or uh, daily activities that people go through for general life, right? And you have a, a series of these daily activities and What's important to see here is that if you have an injury to, say, uh, the cervical level four, C4, you can see in red here that, you know, if you're impacted at that level, you in red, meaning that you need total assist to execute all of these you know, normal daily activities, whether it's eating, you know, combing your hair, moving about, um, you know, in a wheelchair or whatnot, you need total assist for doing that. But if you can heal or improve the motor function by just two level in the neck, remember in one of the first slides I told you that the higher, the the more impactful it is. So if you can move this healing down to just a little bit in the neck, you can greatly improve uh, functional recovery in these patients. And now instead of of, uh, requiring total assist, they can actually uh, uh, be completely independent and and many of these functions require partial assist. So just two motor level improvement is really impactful for these patients and, and, and their quality of life. And that's what we're, we're trying to attempt with our uh, therapy. So we presented the data on our phase one, two trial before it's been made public. Uh, this is the data at one year. Um, you know, this was the first time that this product was tested in the cervical spine. And um, we tested two things. Uh, we tested three different doses because we didn't know which dose was gonna be optimal for our treatment. So we tested two 10 and 20 million injection, And we treated also, we tested two different of, of uh, injury severity, what's right? called Asia A and Asia B. And that's not really critical for now, but I'll, what I'll tell you is that um, after one year, um, you know, this was a trial mostly geared to uh, assess the safety of the therapy and gain some, at least, preliminary insight whether the product had activity. So we're really happy that after one year we got successful engraftment. That is, the cells were able to uh, stay in the spine and do what they were supposed to do. And we had no adverse event that was created or originated from the product itself. But more importantly, we saw that all of these patients had at least one level of functional recovery and about a third of the patient had two or more functional recovery. So it seemed to be, you know, uh, giving signs of activity that were really promising to us. And quickly after two years, we provided that that, uh, update last year, uh, you know, continued very good safety profile in all of the patients that received the product good engraftment as well, sustained, we can see the cell remain on site for a long term, which is what we want to see. Uh, but more importantly, uh, in one of the core of the patients, so one subgroup of the patient, the group that's mostly similar to what we want to structure the, the next trial to be, we saw that five out of six patients actually had two levels of, of functional improvement and one of them had three levels of functional recovery. So really promising, You know, it's not power to demonstrate Uh, efficacy, but, you know, really exciting uh, signs of activity for the product and again, maintain safety. So what do we do moving forward? So when we acquired this program, we knew there were two things we needed to do in order to take this to the next level, meaning that to uh, provide uh, material for a large clinical trial and ultimately get FDA approval and start commercializing this product. So we knew that we needed to improve the manufacturing process for making these cells, because it was based on a rather old process. And we knew that, you know, this process had irregularity in the sense that it was difficult to control uh, the cells from pluripotent state to the specialized state, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, oftentimes, you know, we had impurities in the final product. We need to discard batches of product, and also it was difficult to scale. You know, just uh, it was based on on small scale, small batches uh, of product, which is not really consistent with uh, you know large scale clinical trial, and certainly not with commercialization. So I'll tell you a little bit what we did for that. And finally, we knew also that remember when I told you that we needed a we needed um, a creative engineering solution. We knew that the delivery system, the rig or the device that was required to position very accurately the cells in the spine uh, needed to be improved to make it more uh, u- and user-friendly for the surgeon to manipulate this device more easily, as well as just the logistic of assembling this device at the, at, in, in the operating room um, and, then, and then managing this device as, uh, for, from the patient as well as from the, from, the, from the doctor's perspective. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. So quickly, we did three things to improve the process, right? Starting with the pluripotent stem cells, what we did is we generated new cell banks that were much more potent, much healthier, if you will. Uh, they could grow and, and replenish themselves you know, much better. Uh, secondly, we develop a uh, differentiation process. So, the process from deriving from pluripotent to the specialized uh, stem cells is now much better tightly controlled. It's very easy for us to follow uh, where the cells are going and how, how efficiently they're transitioning from uh, non specialized to specialized. So much better control with better uh, growth factors and in-process control. And at the end, we ended up with a much purer product that uh, hopefully will be much more reproducible and that we can actually scale to uh, commercial scale. And, and so uh, right now, we've done all of these things successfully. We're in the process of now making these cells in, 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 in under GMP that is Uh, to generate uh, material that we can actually put in patient in a clinical trial. You know, the way to do that is is we need to talk to FDA. As you you know, we're a regulated uh, industry, so we're talking to FDA about our plan and and how we want to introduce this process into our next clinical clinical trial. Similarly, for the delivery system, I've told you a little bit about some of the limitation of the initial uh, delivery device that we had. We tested new, uh, newer prototypes now that are much easier to use and much uh, easier to set up uh, to sterilize and to distribute to the various sites. Uh, so we tested a few, we did some feasibility testing and, and likewise uh, our process right now is we're trying to um, discuss with FDA about some of these changes and how we're gonna introduce them to the next clinical stage so that we can do this safely and hopefully we can get um, uh, efficacy reading from our next trial. In conclusion, you know, from a development perspective, what we need to do now, we need to make clinical grade material under GMP, uh, such that we can take this product and take it to the patient. We need to qualify the, a, a new delivery device. That is, we need to uh, prove that uh, it's compatible with ourselves and the surgeon at the end can use this device uh, effectively The process now is to work with FDA and have a conversation with them, explain to them what we want to do and get their buy-in. So we're hopeful that in the next few months, uh, we'll be able to move a much better product as well as a much better uh, delivery system to really facilitate the overall experience from the surgeon perspective all the way down to the patient with a much more robust product that hopefully will uh, provide a, a functional benefit to the patient. Thank you.
5: Hello. My name is Eileen Anderson. I'm uh, really pleased to be here today to be able to talk about some of the work that we've been doing in my lab over the last eight or 10 years of funding um, through CIRM. I want to just thank CIRM for providing the funding to support this meeting, and also all of the folks the boots on the ground, that have participated in organizing. It's an enormous effort to put together a virtual conference like this in the middle of a pandemic. And so uh, a real shout out there. I think one thing That's quite critical in that regard is conveying this kind of information both to our colleagues at at conferences like this one and and others that are more scientific is critical, but also having this conversation with the public is something that's really important about the grant holders meeting. And so I hope that I'm able to convey that line in this talk. So speaking both to the public and conveying some useful information, and my colleagues have to bear with me a little bit if I'm a a bit less technical and less detailed than you might find in a normal talk. So the title of my talk today is Human Neural Stem Cell Efficacy and Repair, but actually I kind of struggled with this. What I really wanted to call it is the way stem cells work. Why? Because this is a great book, if none of you have read it. It talks about the background of the physics and the design parameters of how things around us in everyday life and, you know, even going back to the Middle Ages function, and that that's really important. So if we were going to try and build a mousetrap or a trebuchet, we wouldn 't just put all the pieces next to one another and hope that they would self assemble and we can 't do that with stem cells either; we need to understand some very basic aspects of these cells, which were really discovered very recently and this is a field that has launched forward incredibly quickly over the last fifteen years. but we have to remember that we need to be able to um, understand the basic biology in order to move forward so In that uh, context, with that background, very early on when I was starting up my lab at University of California, Irvine, I worked on spinal cord injury and trying to understand mechanisms of damage and how we could get to repair. I had the opportunity to work with human neural stem cell transplantation to see if we could produce repair after injury by transplanting these cells. So in our animal models, in fact, we found this to be awfully successful. So shown in the panel, Uh, To one side is vehicle where we have an animal that has not received any cells and she's not capable of doing stepping really with her hind limbs, only very occasionally. On the other side though, the animal that received a human neural stem cell transplant is consistently able to move her hind limbs. She's stepping very well, she's moving with coordination. It's a large difference in terms of functional performance between those two animals. Very exciting from our initial studies. In fact, that work was so exciting that over the next eight years or so, from 2002 to 2010, we worked and did a lot of preclinical work um, with our collaborators to try and enable that to go forward into testing in a human clinical trial. And that happened. In 2010, this study was launched um, with Armin Kurt and uh, Mike Failings as the principal investigators. And in fact, what it found was that transplantation of human neural stem cells in chronic thoracic spinal cord injury. So individuals that were not just injured, but really the most challenging thing that we can think about doing for people that might live with a a lifetime of disability. There were some preliminary efficacy measures, mainly in terms of sensation, which is what's shown in the diagram panel. But in fact, this was sufficient that even after a six-year retrospective, which was just published from Dr. Kurt and his group, the conclusion was that spinal cord injury and the damaged spinal cord may still be a suitable target for stem cell transplantation, that preliminary efficacy measures held up, and that there's promise here in terms of moving forward to the clinic. But what we know from other work in my lab is this isn't always the case. It's not uniform. In fact, in my lab using preclinical studies with a different cell line, we've found that those sometimes fail, and we don't know why that really is the essence of what I want to talk about today, trying to understand and the need to understand how the interplay of basic science and knowing how stem cells work interacts with our facility, our ability to go forward with an effective stem cell population into the clinic. So understanding why stem cells behave in specific ways is important at both the basic science level and in terms of clinical translation. So before we go on with that, we need to know a little bit in terms of terms and basic science terms. All stem cells occupy a place in the environment. And in stem cell biology, we call this a niche. So in this diagram, we show a basic niche. It's good enough for our purposes. The idea is that it's a place in three-dimensional space where a cell sits and a basic stem cell that's sitting within it. So an important concept to understand from that analogy is that niche can be different, it can vary, or it can change over time. So if we look at different types of niches, you can get the idea. There might be different components within them. In terms of the basic biology of how cells work, this would be different molecules, different parts of infrastructure, so different types of substrates that the cells could come into contact with, and that a niche could be subject to different states of either damage or repair, or being built, and those all present a different environment and different signals that are conveyed to cells that are going to affect how they behave. By that same token, no two cell lines are identical. Cells themselves have properties that define them, even if they're in the same category of cells. So we work with human neural stem cells in my lab, but one line and another line can't be assumed to be the same, even if they're in the same category. They're going to be intrinsic variation between them. And so let's introduce those two terms. There are extrinsic factors that are a part of the niche, the niche itself, and how different it might be, the state of repair or damage or regeneration that it's in, and intrinsic properties that go with the cells themselves. Those extrinsic and intrinsic signals control stem cell behavior. And those are really important aspects of some key stem cell behaviors, including maintenance and self-renewal, whether those cells... The stem cells themselves are able to make more stem cells and maintain themselves over time whether they survive in their normal niche or after we transplant them lineage restriction and cell differentiation and fate in other words what those cells can become and whether it's productive potentially in terms of repair. So in the case of a neural stem cell, the three things a neural stem cell can become is a neuron, an oligodendrocyte, or an astrocyte, and cues around it and the intrinsic properties of the cells are going to determine what proportion of those three different lineages are generated. And also the migration of the cells. In some cases, certainly in the central nervous system, we may need a therapeutic stem cell population to be capable of migrating quite a long distance. And if it's not, if it's not getting the right extrinsic signals, or if it doesn't have the proper intrinsic programming and state to receive those signals, it may not be capable of migration. And then we may end up with a cell that fails in the context of repair. So an example of this is shown in this slide. So there's three panels that say zero days post-injury, nine days post-injury, 30 days post-injury, one on top of one another. This is all the same cell line transplanted into the same spinal cord injury model, into the same location in the spinal cord, but at different times after spinal cord injury. Everything in those panels that's brown is a human neural stem cell. And if you look at where the brown is distributed, you can see pretty obviously that it's not the same. It doesn't take an educated eye to view that. In the very top panel where it says zero days post-injury, that's acute. The cells that we transplanted are migrating, they're moving in towards the injury epicenter at the very center, and they form a dense plexus of cells that is behaving very differently than the cells that we see in the lower panels. And the only thing that's different because the donor cells are the same is the niche that they're seeing because of timing. So there are altered extrinsic signals that are in that niche and those are affecting the behavior of the cells. And in fact, that has consequences for whether or not we see repair enabled by those cells. In the top panel, the cells failed to yield repair. In the bottom two where we're transplanting at a delayed time point, now those cells are successful. Why? So understanding those extrinsic cues becomes really important. I'm gonna thin slice through a lot of data from my lab over the years, um, where we've tried to focus on understanding the difference between those environments, One thing that we knew and became clear early on is that there's a tremendous amount of inflammation that's influencing the central nervous system after a traumatic injury, and that is changing over time. And so we went on to investigate a number of the molecules that are involved in that. One of them that we became really interested in was called C1Q. So without giving a lot of detail about C1Q, I just want to highlight a take-home that we found and just was published about a week ago, in fact, in eLife, showing that C1Q is an immune molecule in that early acute niche where cells might fail is the extrinsic signal that is dictating how those stem cells behave and whether they're capable of repair or not. So how do we figure that out? Well, in science, we did something called an unbiased forward screen to identify transmembrane receptor proteins that could be partners for C1Q. What that means in English is that we went on a fishing expedition And really the idea here is we used C1Q as a protein as bait, and we looked for what things neural stem cells expressed on their cell surface that were capable of binding it with high affinity. And we showed that there were five proteins of particular interest. I'm going to tell you about just one of them today. And we looked at those proteins, showed that they could signal using C1Q to neural stem cells, that if we disrupted that signaling, that we would alter the behavior of those neural stem cells in a dish. We showed that C1Q and those receptors, here is shown CD44, bound to one another at the surface of the cell membrane. That's what you see is the little red dots. And then we asked the question of what happens if we, instead of allowing those interactions to happen, if we blocked either at the level of the receptor by taking it away, called a knockout, or we blocked the C1Q, the extrinsic signal that was present in the environment. And so we wanted to test what the functional role for these extrinsic signaling C1Q to these receptors here, CD44, would be when we tested in vivo and not just in vitro. So here, blocking again at the level of the receptor, we see this same type of cell behavior where they're clustering in towards the center. That's alleviated when we knock out the receptor, and in fact, we convert to repair when we look at functional locomotor recovery. If we do the opposite experiment and block the extrinsic signal itself, the C1Q, here it looks the same way that I showed previously in terms of the wild type, but blocking the C1Q, in fact, we block that accumulation at the center of the spinal cord, and again, we convert to the potential for repair. So this tells us that in a very meaningful way, extrinsic signals can influence capacity for a stem cell to mediate repair after transplantation, at least in the case of spinal cord injury. So understanding those signaling pathways tells us that we have a new path to be able to think about how to augment the capacity of these cells to behave In not just an in vivo setting, but in a clinical translation setting. Now, I mentioned also the other parameter that we're interested in and I think is important are intrinsic factors that affect the ability of human neural stem cells to enable repair and recovery. So, one question that underlies that is how different are different human neural stem cell lines? Well, actually, While we wanted to look at this, this turned out to be really difficult to tell because there are very few tissue-derived human neural stem cell lines or comparisons that have been made between them. So with CIRM support, we developed additional new lines, first to set in our lab and then using CGMP-compatible protocols and CGMP techniques to enable testing so those would be clinically relevant going forward. So how much variation is there? I mentioned a number of things about extrinsic and intrinsic signaling that were important. One included stem cell self-renewal or stemness, and these are six different lines compared in terms of their capacity, and you can see that they're widely variant. Differentiation fate is another factor that we can look at. Again, all you need to do is look at these bars to get the sense of how different these six different cell lines are, and the same in terms of migration. So Is there also that same variation in terms of what the repair capacity of these cells is for spinal cord injury? And so we transplanted all six lines and controls in parallel. The answer is yes. In fact, out of these six lines, only two cell lines, this one and this one, met criteria for consistently demonstrating locomotor recovery of function in a chronic cervical spinal cord injury model. So what do we do with that? Well, we can't go forward very effectively in terms of a clinical setting if we don't know how the lines that we're using are going to behave. So we set as our goal for this particular project to use these lines and the new ones we developed to make a profile that would help us to be able to predict whether a candidate cell line would be efficacious for a given function, in our case, chronic spinal cord injury. And the way we did that was to generate these lines in parallel using the same protocols, CGMP compliant, grow them up again in parallel, testing them under growth conditions, differentiation conditions, or after in vivo transplantation to see if they were efficacious. Surprisingly, just comparing growth conditions and differentiation conditions in terms of the gene expression profiles, we saw some cases, which is exactly what we had hoped for, where there were just incredible switches in cell lines that didn't work, Almost no expression in cell lines that did work very high expression, or the opposite in cell lines that failed on efficacy testing very high expression, or in cell lines that were successful in efficacy testing very low expression. And this differential gene expression actually gave us a shockingly small number of genes, at least under growth conditions and even under differentiation conditions. But 24 is a good number to be able to work with where we thought we could develop a profile to be able to help us understand and predict in advance whether or not a given cell line would yield repair, and so we tested this. We applied this protocol to a new set of lines that we developed again with CERN funding and made those predictive calls about efficacy in advance of actually doing behavioral testing in vivo. So these are the four lines we tested, 182, 183, UCI 184, UCI 191, and here was our threshold for prediction of efficacy. We predicted two would be positive. And in fact, those same two lines in our in vivo testing were able to yield quite robust efficacy in chronic cervical spinal cord injury, whereas the other two lines where we predicted a negative call failed. That, we hope, will give us some new tools moving forward in terms of helping to understand intrinsic variation, because now we have a whole new set of lines to look at and be able to dig into that in a better way. It also gives us potentially a tool that we can really think about applying from a practical perspective in terms of monitoring cell lines, in terms of their expansion for clinical use, where we might be able to say with much more assurance moving forward into clinical trial that there's a good chance versus a not good chance of success. So I hope I've convinced you that understanding extrinsic and intrinsic control of stem cell behavior is important. It's important not just at the basic science level but because it has very real implications in terms of our potential for success in moving forward ultimately to clinical translation. So with that, I'd like to thank a few folks for the um, disc two project, which I just described on intrinsic factors. This was an enormous project. I can't emphasize how much work that was in a thirty-month period of time. And I'd like to highlight a couple of people in particular, Katchapilte, shown here, who. Developed our protocols for being able to develop CGMP compliant lines, manage the whole project start to finish, and has been a tremendous collaborator at UCI. Anita Lakatos, who is our gene jockey and has dealt with everything to do with RNA seq analysis and really the very sophisticated methods that are needed to develop the profile. All the other folks who did um, the boots on the ground work and my longtime collaborator here, Brian Cummings, but Josh, David, Crystal, uh, Rebecca Nishi, Chris Nelson, Javier Lepe, and uh, Joseph Recaro. And at UC Davis, Gerhard Barrow and Brian Fury, without whom this really would not have been possible. And then a much larger group of people who over time have contributed to all of our neural stem cell work. And in fact, looking at the extrinsic factors that I mentioned I'm very grateful to them, and uh, it's been a wonderful experience to have them as our team. Last of all, our support, CIRM, NIH, Wings for Life, and the Craig Nielsen Foundation in terms of support for this specific work. Thank you very much for your attention, and I look forward to the panel discussion.
1: So I think we'll get started with our our questions. Uh, The first question is for Jake, and the, the question is, you know, you received immunosuppression um, after the re- after your cell injection, did that affect the receiving of that uh, immunosuppression? Did that affect your recovery in any way? Did that affect your physical therapy or any way in which you were recovering from um, your injury?
2: No, actually, that's a great question. It wasn't very. It wasn't a very high dose, so it actually didn't seem to affect me much at all. Uh, I was very highly regulated um, by the doctors and everything like that to make sure. That everything went well and it was safe, so no uh, no complications with that. It actually went pretty well.
1: Great. Okay. So we have lots of questions um, right now, um, and the question is: What happens when you put your cells in a chronic spinal cord injury model? Uh, do you still see the proliferation of axons? What happens under these circumstances? And maybe the other panelists can also and speakers can also pipe in on, uh, with their responses.
6: Well, so I'll start. But uh, actually, Dr. Anderson already showed us some changes uh, depending on the time of implantation. And we've seen differences as well. Um, as you know, there, there's often an accumulation of scar tissue uh, at the borders of the lesion. And that can make it more difficult, especially in our model where we're putting stem cells or neural stem cells into the lesion site itself. It can make it more difficult for them to send their axons long distances. However, we have had success in both rodent models and also in the larger animal models um, up to a year post-injury transplanting these cells and getting survival, graft survival, and axon growth into the host cord. So the short answer is, yes, things have changed. Yes, it can be more challenging. That also, by the way, depends on the injury model itself. So a hemisection, very different from hemicontusion in terms of the long-term scarring. Um, But despite those changes, we have had some success, um, some important success in those chronic models. And I'll, I'll leave it open for the other speakers at this point.
5: So it's a really important question. Let me first say that. For for spinal cord injury, acute injury is a really difficult target, particularly as everyone here well knows, when you start to think about moving towards clinical trial, you buy a lot with chronic spinal cord injury, not the least of which is treating a patient population that really needs to have some options. But you also get a lot of stability in terms of what the injury environment is like. And so the ability to do a more, uh, a clinical trial that has greater sensitivity to be able to detect recovery of function with fewer subjects enrolled. And that's a, a really big deal from a practical consideration point of view in terms of success, as, as you all well know. So it's very critical to test in the chronic environment. And I think one thing that we know from the sorts of different studies that have been done as Efren highlights is what you're asking your cell to do matters a lot there. If you're asking your cell to make axons and form a connective, a reconnection of circuitry, it has an entirely different challenge that it's facing in a chronic environment when you have scar tissue formation happening. If you're asking a cell to go in and you're transplanting outside the lesion epicenter, as we do, and you're asking those cells to probably listen to the environment and make, you know, oligodendrocytes or make some other sort of cell that might not be as dependent upon the formation of that scar tissue, you still may have a pretty good chance for repair. That doesn't mean it's not listening to the signals that are changing over that time course. And so understanding both of those things, your cell and what you're asking it to do and how that environment is changing and how it therefore is communicating to the cells that you're transplanting is the trick. And despite the tremendous progress that we've made with stem cell research and how far we've come in terms of clinical trials. I mean, just the fact that we've run these multiple clinical trials is an incredible advance over this period of time. Those are things that we still need to understand better than I think we do right now.
1: Yeah. Terrific. Um, One of the questions that came in for you, Eileen is when you were looking at characterizing your different lines and some of them functioned, some of them didn't, was there a difference in survival amongst the different lines that you tested?
5: Yeah, that's also a great question. Um, Yes, there is. There's a difference in terms of the level of engraftment, But, but that's a tricky answer because it, we know for sure it isn't as simple as that. So in the example that I showed of the environment changing over time, so transplanting, Immediately versus subacute at nine days post injury versus 30 days post injury, there we know the survival is identical. In fact, it's indistinguishable with that same line. And yet you get repair in two cases, and at least one case where recovery of function, the ability to generate recovery of function fails. In comparison of the lines that we've made, absolutely, there are differences in survival and long term engraftments. I think in some cases that's going to be an important factor in terms of whether the cells are able to yield repair. But as I said, we know for sure it's not the only thing that's critical. And so it's not as simple as saying, if the cells survive, you're in good shape. There's more to it than meets the eye in that regard.
1: Great. So as we're talking about engraftment, uh, question for Francois that's come in. Um, How do you define engraftment in your clinical study? Uh, You reported engraftment, but how are you defining engraftment? And how did you measure engraftment in the clinical study?
4: Right, that's a good question. (laughs) It's obviously very difficult, unfortunately. So in animal, I'm sure, Jane, you can attest to that. In animal, it's relatively easy, right, because there are... um, human specific antibodies we can use or we can use specific sequence of DNA that are specific or human in the context of an animal so we can sacrifice and and, and track the cells exactly where they are. Uh, but in human, it's more complicated. Obviously, we cannot go back and take a biopsy um, because it's very fragile tissue, as you know, and very impactful. Uh, we could do that. We can do that in other tissues and connective tissues, for example. But um, neuronal tissue, we can't do that. So the way that the um, the study was designed was using MRI. So we use uh, imaging signature. We can see the cells um, indirectly in some ways because they kind of shine a little bit differently. Um, you know when when they're there. So we can, if we do MRI at, at various time points, we can see this signature that the cells are there and maintained there over time. But it, it is an indirect uh, observation, obviously, and it's not it's not easy.
1: Yeah. Another question for you, Francois. Um, the uh, question is um, with regards to um, looking at. Um, uh, your device, your new device, yeah. how does your new device differ from devices that have been used in the clinic? And how are you planning to load the cells? How is the neurosurgeon going to load the cells in your new device?
4: Right. There's a couple of elements to this question, right? So uh, the device itself, you know, we, we're not um, completely uh, um, uh, definitively decided on which device we're going to use. We're we're currently testing a few options. One of them is particularly interesting. is is so far uh, passing most of our. Um uh, qualification uh, methodology, if you will, just we, we need to make sure that not only the, the, the device will perform as expected by the surgeon perspective, you know, as manipulating the device itself, but also they're compatible with uh, the actual product, right? That they won't compromise the cells, and their, their viability and their ability to do what they're supposed to be doing. So unfortunately, there are no approved device for um, uh, parenchymal delivery of cells uh, in the spine right? So, um, so there's no, um, so we need to come up with a, a new way of bringing these devices into our clinical trial. So the device will be investigational, will be part of our clinical trial. And to do that, we need to have conversations with the FDA. And again, like I mentioned, we need to, uh, you know, the, we need to um, explain our plan with FDA and, and convince them that what we're going to do is going to be safe and effective. Um, so, um, and, and how we, we're making sure that it's easy to use from the surgeon perspective and loading the cells. Uh, that's a very good question as well. One thing that we're doing is we're changing the formulation, um, the, the basically the buffer that the cells are suspended in, uh, such that the, the cells can be immediately upon upon reception, of the operating room. They can just be thawed. That is, they can be, you know, defrosted can be thawed and they can be loaded immediately into, um, into the delivery device, simple aspiration in a syringe-like device. So it's relatively simple. It's, you know, what doctors are used to in in loading a syringe. Um, So it's not that complicated. What was complicated before was the process of, thawing the cells and, and washing away the freezing media that they were suspended in. Now we've eliminated that, we have a kind of a thaw and inject uh, formulation that's much easier to use from the surgeon perspective as well as, um, as uh, loading the, the, the entire dose into uh, the delivery system.
1: Perfect, thank you. A uh, couple more questions for Ephron. Um, the first is, have you ever seen any evidence of long trap regeneration?
6: Absolutely, absolutely. In the rodent models, we see long tract regeneration, the entire extent of the CNS. In fact, we will see axons all the way up and down the spinal cord uh, and into the brain, even. Um, and in fact, we were a little concerned at first. We're like, "Well, may, this could be problematic," but we haven't seen any signs, any indications of uh, detriment of function due to those axons. In uh, some of our in our larger animal models, we originally saw up to five centimeters of growth up and down, again, both directions, um, but in a limited number of axons. So the growth wasn't as extensive, but you're also dealing with a much larger spinal cord. So that may be part of the issue. But the short answer is yes.
1: And the Um, second question for you is, have you done any electrophysiology?
6: Absolutely. Um, Only in the rodent models, however. Uh, we do not yet have any electrophysiology in the larger animal model. Um, in let's see, we have about a dozen papers over the last year, eight years or so, and I believe in between three and five of them, we have done various forms of electrophysiology. Some of the papers were not set up to study that, but we are we have absolutely shown that you get connections, uh, working synaptic connections across the entire lesion site. So that includes both synapses forming from the host axons growing into the graft onto the grafted cells themselves, and then passing out of the grafted cells uh, out through those graft derived axons to into the host and onto those host neurons as well. So absolutely there's been quite a bit of electrophysiological work.
1: Terrific. Uh, Another question for Jake. And question is, you know, um, Are you uh, involved and planning to be involved further in biomedical research, and how did your experience with your own injury and subsequent participation in the clinical trial influence that decision?
2: Yeah, so before my injury, I didn't really know a whole lot about the medical field or any sort of research or anything like that, but um, particularly once the trial started, I started getting all this new information and speaking with all these doctors and scientists and researchers and everything like that, I... Realized I had a lot, of, um, a lot of interest in this kind of stuff, and I just started absorbing all this new information. So I actually changed my major from mechanical engineering to biomedical engineering here at Cal Poly right as I was starting to apply. So it gave me the ability to explore this new field and kind of find new paths I can take. So it really gave me you know, a, new, a new interest and new passion as I move forward.
1: Great. Excellent. Uh, another question for Francois. Um, With regards to, you report some recovery in patients uh, that have received the OPCs. Um, Do you have a way of distinguishing? Do you think that this is spontaneous recovery, or can you attribute it to the cells?
4: A great question, but a really difficult one.
5: Yeah, I know.
4: <laughs> this, this was an open-label trial, right? So it, it was not a control trial. So the only way to compare is use historical data. And um, the historical data, what it tells us is that if you look at a similar patient population, you don't expect this kind of level, about a third of the patient getting two or more uh, level of functional recovery. So it's typically lower than that. There is, there's definitely a level of, of uh, spontaneous recovery. It's usually around the lower 20% is, is, is what we see from the literature. So, and this trial again was not designed to demonstrate efficacy, right? We, it was a it was a, um, a dose escalation, like I mentioned in my talk, was several doses that were tested. So, what what this trial allowed us to do is is hone in on the best patient population of the. the the, the target patient population that we believe will benefit most and the next trial most likely will um, will provide that element of comparability with uh, with some kind of a controlled patient population We don't and we're not exactly uh, sure how to uh, structure this trial because there are some ethical um, you know question of having uh, placebo controls and things like that for this kind of patient population as, as you can imagine uh, so, um, so but we'll see we expect the next trial to be better tailored to the target patient population with a more robust product and a better delivery system. So we're hoping all of these things will add up to uh, continue to show an increase in in, uh, efficacy and and activity of our our product.
1: Okay, a question for for all of the speakers. Um, Do you envision the use of organoids ever in your own research And helping either transplanting organoids or actually using organoids as some way to screen for factors that might enhance their growth, enhance their graftment, etc.
5: Organoids are really um, interesting advance that, you know, again, is one of these things that's just progressed so quickly. Um, one issue that we've thought a lot about is whether you can use organoids as kind of an in vitro system to be able to mature your cells, right? And I know that there are other groups that are thinking about as a way to take a pluripotent cell where there can be quite difficult to control and use that as a way to give them some tissue education as it were, uh, and perhaps make a cell that has greater functionality and, and a better differentiation profile for the long haul, especially for the central nervous system as a potential area of application. In terms of transplanting organoids, uh, I think F's work and, 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 and Mark Tozinski's work would suggest that there could be some paths um, that might be interesting in that regard to to sort of preform a circuit as, as a potential way to go. For us, in terms of, again, what we're asking ourselves to do, organoids are a different kettle of fish kind of from where we're going. And so that it doesn't make a lot of sense in our context. And the survival of organoids in the injured spinal cord has some issues that go with it, because They are already struggling in terms of making the kinds of three-dimensional structures that they make to sustain sufficient oxygenation and nutrient supply when you're growing them in a dish. And Now, if you take that and you add the additional challenge of transplantation, that's a bit of a hard mark to hit. But there's no question that they're moving our understanding forward of how tissue development happens and how differentiation happens. And in particular, for things that we think a lot about in the lab, potentially how immune and neural stem cell or neural progeny interactions happen. And so they make an interesting model for for us to be able to advance our understanding.
4: I think if I can add, you know, we, we use uh, organoids in our research and development team as well, but mostly for retinal diseases. And, and for us, I see retinal uh, organoids as a, either an intermediate step towards a product or uh, a way of uh, perhaps studying uh, biology and, and cell-cell interactions. And to me, the, the challenge with organoid is is how do you characterize the product at the end, right? Because if it, it has an element of tissue and multi Uh, cell type um, it adds a level of complexity that he has a hard time digesting (laughs) not that there's no promises at all uh, it's not what i mean i think there's a lot of promises in organoid system uh, but their use in the clinic i think it's going to be a a challenge just to have a a very good characterization of the product and have consistency and and scale to, to so that it becomes relevant to uh to a disease treatment
6: And I pretty much agree with everything that was just said by both of the other speakers. That is exactly right. Especially the challenges that you both pointed out, Um, even though our model is is theoretically more suited to that, those challenges in terms of survival, especially once you've differentiated the organoids far enough along that path, that, that could make it very difficult in our system. And I personally envision more of what Dr. Anderson was describing as sort of actually Uh, Dr. Bennett, as well, the more intermediate step uh, in terms of either helping the cells along or helping evaluate how well the cells might integrate as well.
1: A question for Eileen, again, in terms of the various factors that you have identified is what's a good cell and a poor performing cell that has tremendous uh, application to the development of potency assays. And are you planning to use these for potency assays?
5: Yeah, I, that was certainly a part of our goal in terms of going down this path. As anyone who's, you know, touched a toe towards clinical translation understands comparability and potency um, are, are huge issues in developing assays that are really useful in that regard are, is an enormous issue. So that's, that's exactly um, where I, I hope we will, one of the ways that I hope we'll get some, some useful applications out of the the most recent work that we've done.
1: Okay, uh, last question so far that's come in is pain. Have any um, you observed pain that is uh, in animal models that has been observed as a result of the transplantation of your cells? And how much
5: have you looked? i 'm sure we 've all looked, yeah, <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, don 't believe in any of the relevant studies that anyone has um, shown evidence for for pain. The caveat to that is i don 't know that we have the best models to look at in yeah. terms of our spinal cord injury models, although they 're t- terrific compared to some disease states because there 's very high fidelity with what happens in the human clinical population we have trouble when it comes to asking animals questions about how they feel and so we have a lot of supplemental assays that we do to try and interrogate that and the concern is always there that maybe we didn't ask them quite the right question and so it it remains a little bit of a, a wild card for how translation will happen That said, um, certainly in the Geron, Asterius, and now next phase um, trials with um, OPCs, I don't think there's been any clinical evidence for issues there and there were not in terms of the stem cell link trials either. And so the safety and tolerability of what has been done with embryonic derived or uh, neural stem cell derived transplants in clinical application has been quite good.
1: So um, I'm not seeing any further questions from the audience. It was but a great set of questions. So I think uh, we'll uh, stop now and thank the speakers, everyone, for wonderful, wonderful presentations. And thank the audience for participating. And thanks, CERN for putting this on.